Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's expensive to be an African parliamentarian. Constituents relentlessly ask for financial help. It's not just handouts, though. They simply want services the state isn't providing. We look at efforts to fill in those gaps rather than emptying MPs' pockets. And Chinese authorities worry that the country's youngsters are in poor shape. So in a country obsessed with exams, there's now another, physical education tests that carry as much weight as the academic kind. But first... Assets of all sorts have been on a tear recently. Yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average hit a fresh high after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell reiterated in congressional testimony that America's central bank will continue to help the economy. The main thing that we can do is continue to support the economy, give it the support that it needs. In fact, America's indices have set 32 record highs in 2021. And it's only February. Oil prices are also rising. Even the resale value of baseball cards is on the up. And then there are the cryptocurrency markets. The market cap for Bitcoin above $1 trillion. Another cryptocurrency called Dogecoin, which was started as a gag, mm-hmm. has gained about 1,500% of its value in the last three months. Is this just the beginning of a crypto craze or will the Bitcoin bubble burst? The bubble might not be bursting, but it has been deflating a smidgen. Bitcoin is now hovering around $49,000. That has to do with a different cryptocurrency called Tether, which fell foul of American regulators on Tuesday. It's a case that's rattling those who think Bitcoin and its ilk can work like traditional assets. Tether's a type of cryptocurrency that's known as a stablecoin. Stablecoins were created as a way to peg the market value of a digital coin or currency to some external reference. Matthew Valencia is The Economist's deputy business affairs editor. In Tether's case, the issuer, which is also known as Tether, has long maintained that its coins are backed one-to-one by dollars. Now, more recently, uh, it said they were largely backed by dollars, with the rest backed by equivalent types of assets. And there are lots and lots of these Tethers around. More than 34 billion have been issued or in circulation. Why peg them to the dollar, though? Isn't the whole point of cryptocurrencies that they're alternatives to regular currencies like the dollar? The pegging of them is really done for two reasons. First of all, it's to reduce volatility for punters in a market that's known for being very volatile. And the second reason is that pegging allows stablecoins to act as a kind of bridge between cryptocurrencies and the traditional sort of currencies. So it makes it easier to switch between them. And you say there's a number of these stablecoins around. I mean, how influential is Tether itself? Tether is actually very significant, very important within the crypto world. So if you look at some of the most active cryptocurrency exchanges, 
there have been days over the past year or two when the majority of Bitcoin purchases, in some cases two-thirds of purchases, were made using tethers. And so it's clearly much more than just a small dark corner of the market. And so what's the problem? Is it not serving the niche as claimed in the, in the market? Well, it's long claimed to be backed one-to-one by dollars or equivalent assets. But there are a lot of skeptics out there, and it's long been claimed by others that this wasn't the case and sort of couldn't really have been the case given how many tethers have been minted and, and pushed out into the market. And at the same time, there are sort of some other concerns about Tether. One is that it can be used to manipulate the price of Bitcoin. One fairly recent study found that uh, purchases of Tether were timed in such a way as to kind of follow market downturns. And those purchases essentially kind of helped to jack up the price of Bitcoin. And there's a related concern, which is the control that Tether, the company, has over the supply of Tether, the coin. And and this is to do with, with the fact that in one really important respect, Tether is very different from Bitcoin. So you look at Bitcoin, there are a finite number of Bitcoins, and that's by design. If you look at Tether... It can mint as many of the coins as it likes. In fact, it sort of famously once issued several hundred million of them in one single day. And that sort of ability to sort of print or mint at will is another worry. Um, And now those worries have crystallized somewhat in in the regulator's eyes. That's right. In fact, there are a number of investigations that have, have been opened, and one of them came to a head this week. So... Uh, This was with the Attorney General of New York and her team who'd been looking into Tether and also into a crypto exchange called Bitfinex, which is related to Tether. It's owned by some of the same people. And so the Attorney General, Letitia James, came out this week and branded the two firms' activities as, quote, fraudulent and deceptive. And they essentially said that Tether in particular lied about having been fully backed by dollars. There was supposed to be an external audit of Tether. That was abandoned a couple of years ago. And instead, it sort of resorted to a form of self-verification. And the Attorney General looked at this and said it was a sham. She concluded that the the cash backing the Tethers was only moved into place on the morning that the self-audit was done. As a result of all of this, she said that Tether is, quote, a, a stable coin without stability. So what was the outcome? Was there any punishment doled out? There was a fine involved. It was $18.5 million for the two companies. Much more importantly, really, Bitfinex and Tether were barred from trading with New Yorkers. And also, they've, they've both been told that they have to engage in mandatory reporting of their activities, which is a big deal because... These companies and others like them have been, you know, rather opaque for a long time. And I think it would be sort of, you know, quite a big deal to to have a lot more light shed on them. Though I should add to all of this that the two firms have issued statements and they have said that they admit no wrongdoing. But you say Tether actually underpins quite a lot of the, the movement in, in the broader crypto market. I mean, what effect has there been on that market? You know, there was a reaction to the Tether news, but there's been a lot of other stuff going on as well in the market. So it's kind of hard to pick the different bits apart. But the short answer in terms of sort of how the market's looking is that it's been looking very frothy of late. Price of Bitcoin has gone up hugely since around a year ago, roughly quadrupled. Now, in recent days, some air has come out of the market. There are 
a number of factors behind that. It's sort of hard to get a full sense of how important relatively each of them are, but a number of things have happened. I mean, Elon Musk, the, the boss of Tesla, the electric car maker, he's seen by, by many as the kind of crypto cheerleader-in-chief. He said a few days ago that the price of Bitcoin seems high, was what he said, and that was um, quite striking. We've also seen a Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, making some disparaging comments about Bitcoin, saying that it's an extremely inefficient way to conduct transactions. But having said all of that, you know, Bitcoin is, is still not that far from its all-time high of a week or so ago. I mean, we're seeing this big rally across all asset classes. Where does this episode leave us in the long-term picture, do you think? It is quite a muddy picture because we have the financial establishment, if you like, pushing back and developing alternatives to these these Bitcoin-type cryptocurrencies. And at the same time, we are seeing more regulation. We're seeing more regulators looking more closely at the market. You know, it remains to be seen how things go with Tether. I mean, there's there's a lot of scepticism around it. If scrutiny increases on Tether and there's a sort of loss of confidence in it, that could have a much broader impact on the crypto markets. Uh, there was a note recently put out by strategists from JP Morgan Chase, basically saying, look, if there's a loss of confidence in Tether, that could that could cause a major liquidity shock across crypto markets. So there's a lot of uncertainty, but there's still a huge amount of, of optimism in certain quarters. It's an uncertain picture. Thanks very much for joining us, Matthew. Thank you, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. When Arinda Gordon Kakuma was running to be elected in 2016 as a member of Uganda's parliament, he had to pay large sums to print posters, deploy field agents, and literally to keep his campaign on the road. You need fuel. You need fuel. On average, you may need about 200 liters a day. But the costs associated with becoming an MP didn't stop there. Mr. Arinda discovered his constituents expected him to fund a seemingly unending list of services, including education and hospital care. He wants support for school fees. The other one, his child is sick. So he wants some support. All sorts of things. Mr. Arinda says that while he was proud to serve his country, the prestige of the job wasn't worth the financial hit that came with it. It's not a good investment. It's a hell of a job. It's a hell of a job. Mr. Arinda speaks for many African MPs. His campaign expenditure is not unusual. New research from countries including Uganda, Kenya, Ghana and Benin suggests that aspiring politicians can spend tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on their campaigns. And the spending doesn't stop there. John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent. A lot of MPs will keep on paying for various expenses of their constituents while in office. And the extent is huge. 
I mean, it looks as if many MPs are spending amounts equivalent to, if not more than the salaries they earn, looking after their constituents. And how is it that these countries have ended up with their MPs doling out cash like this? These arrangements have historical roots. In colonial times, African countries had powerful governors, and after independence, a lot of these powerful executive structures were kept on by authoritarian presidents. And they like to sideline MPs, speaking generally here. And one way of doing that was to keep MPs busy in their constituencies. So they encourage parliamentarians to become like mini welfare states, responsible for the development of local areas. And that suited the presidents quite nicely. It also suited dominant parties quite nicely because they could charge MPs to run on their tickets. And while a lot of this just happened by chance and the accumulative effects of of history, what you've ended up with is a system where in lots of countries, especially those with direct representation, MPs essentially act as substitutes for ineffective governments. And, and what sorts of numbers are we talking about here? How much are these MPs spending on their constituents? Well, MPs are understandably reluctant to open up their books entirely, but anonymous surveys suggest they spend more than they make through their salaries and allowances. Mr. Arinda reckons he spent more than $200,000, roughly 250 times Uganda's GDP per capita on his campaign. And then when he got into office, he was spending $400 a day on looking after his constituents. And in other countries, it seems like the amounts are even more. One Kenyan MP reckons he spends nearly $5,000 a month on donating to funerals alone. But the important thing to understand is that MPs are not just doing charity, they're also providing kind of ersatz public services. For example, in Uganda, 180 of the 440 ambulances in the country are owned by MPs. But where are these MPs getting the money for all of this, $400 a day and higher? It's a great question. And that amount is getting higher every cycle, as far as we can tell. Some start off rich, and there's evidence, for example, from Benin, that over time you're getting fewer academics, teachers, dare I say journalists running, and more people from business or ex-customs officials and things like that becoming MPs. But others just gamble, in effect. They take out loans, they borrow money from friends and family. There's quite significant debt problems in some countries. In Sierra Leone, for example, you'll often find MPs' names in the debtors' list published by local banks. But most worryingly of all, of course, is that MPs may be tempted to try and recoup the cost through patronage and corruption. Obviously, not a lot of that comes through in the academic research, but when you speak to African MPs privately, they can be quite candid about what they are expected to do in return for donations. And often they they come across more as actors kind of trapped in a system rather than people who are deliberately venal. And so do they break even then if, if they have to turn to things like patronage and corruption? It's hard to know the ledger, but what we do know is that MPs tend to not have a lot of time in order to recoup the costs. Most MPs in African countries seem to lose their re-election campaigns. And that is partly because there's a lot of competition to become a parliamentarian, but it's also because presidents are partly to blame for whipping up voters' expectations about how effective MPs can be. 
So take Yoweri Museveni, Uganda's authoritarian president. He isn't running his country particularly well, but he often blames MPs for that. So he will go round to constituencies and tell voters, oh, that school that's collapsing or that clinic that isn't working, that's not my fault as president. That's the MPs' fault for not lobbying me hard enough. So what's being done about this as these, these costs to MPs spiral out of control? Well, you've seen some countries pass campaign finance laws, but they aren't really effective because they tend to address parties rather than individual candidates. And they also don't deal with the spending that happens between electoral cycles. There's an interesting second approach, though, something called constituency development funds, which are present in a dozen or so African countries. And they, in effect, formalize the MPs' informal rule. So they give a pot of public money to the MPs to spend on local projects as they see fit. So rather than having to dip into their pocket, they dip into the state pockets instead. And those funds are, are working where, where they are? The results are mixed. There's some research in Kenya, which suggests that voters like constituency development funds. They judge MPs based upon how well they spend the money and what they spend the money on. But we shouldn't get too carried away. A lot of these funds become slush funds for MPs, and they'll never amount to the same amount of money that you would get, say, spent on schools by a Ministry of Education or clinics by a Ministry of Health. Ultimately, African voters, like voters everywhere, what they want are high-quality public services. And MPs can try as hard as they like and they can borrow as much money and spend as much money, but ultimately they'll never be substitutes for effective government. John, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. This video from a Chinese school shows a circle of well-coordinated kindergartners bouncing balls. The precision is so rhythmic, it went viral. But physical education classes in China aren't all like this, and that's got some government officials worried. The Chinese government is concerned that children are unfit, unhealthy, and focus too much on academic subjects that leave no time for physical exercise. Stephanie Studer is a China correspondent for The Economist. They hope that by including a physical education test, that PE class stops being a simple box-ticking exercise. And, and what kind of test for physical education are we talking about here? These reforms are being rolled out in a piecemeal fashion across China. In October, the central government said that it wanted schools to start including daily gym classes as part of the syllabus and also testing students regularly on their fitness. And in fact, their fitness would be made also a condition of their graduating from secondary school. So if we take the example of Yunnan, a southwestern province, which has been at the forefront of these reforms, they've not only revamped their PE test, but they're also giving it the same weighting as the most important subjects like maths and Chinese that have the, the highest weightings. So kids have to do a, a certain number of push-ups or run a certain distance or what? Well, different provinces are interpreting this directive in different ways. So here in Beijing, for instance, a lot have latched on to skipping or jump rope. So you can 
see in parks and residential compounds um, children sort of furiously improving their skipping skills. And elsewhere, it's uh, simply more athletics. And why is it that the government is suddenly so worried about this component of education? I think the big driver is that the government realises Chinese children are increasingly unhealthy. A survey done in the southern city of Guangzhou found that fewer than 3% of local children were in what it deemed excellent health. And across the country, one in five Chinese children is overweight or obese, up from just one in 20 in 1995. But media reports tend to fan another fear that has been around for even longer, which is this notion that young boys in China are no longer manly enough. So this idea that because they're not doing enough physical education, they're turning into wimps. Um, They've often been called sissies in state media, for instance. A few years ago, Xinhua, the state news agency, summed this up with a headline that said, why good times produce weak children. So another aspect of this drive is that the government is hoping to cultivate masculinity in its boys. So how did this notion of masculinity get folded up into a question of exercise? Well, a couple of years ago, there was a TV show broadcast at the beginning of each new school year called First Class of the New Semester. So millions watch it. And the show in 2018 provoked something of a ruckus because many parents were upset that it had included male pop stars from the band New F4, who they thought looked far too feminine and were therefore bad influences, bad role models for their young boys. These fears are often summed up in China as a boys' crisis without an awful lot of evidence. But in January, the education ministry responded to a politician's proposal to hire more male PE teachers to prevent this so-called feminization of Chinese teen boys. And indeed, the ministry responded um, and said that it would pay more attention to cultivating boys' masculinity. Um, So it has given us another clue as to what is driving this PE reform. And so do you think it'll work in terms of drawing attention away from academic studies and, and more towards physical ones? There is something rather ironic about needing to force overworked pupils to take yet another exam. But in exam-obsessed China, you can be sure that if it's going to count towards the final score, students and parents are going to be taking it very seriously. Stephanie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. 
The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.